Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, each day a new revelation or allegation from the corridors of power in Canberra, seemingly more horrifying than the last, makes the idea of political satire certainly hit different. But former speechwriter and political correspondent Martin Mackenzie Murray has long had a cynical view of politicians and the staff that facilitate their existence. Some of these experiences have been filtered through his first novel, The Speechwriter, a truly warped satire speculative fiction that uh, really does have a quite kind of warped fever dreamish future in mind. Toby, a jailed speechwriter, pens his tell-all memoir, rising up through the ranks of a jaded and truly bizarre bureaucracy until he reaches the top, determined to force a twisted endgame while sentient playstations wreak havoc in the messed up world beyond the prison walls. Martin Mackenzie Murray joins me soon to talk about writing about politics, his life as a speechwriter and penning a picaresque satire for the modern world. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. There are probably few people who consider political political communications noble. But if there are any, let me tell you this. It is where subtlety, eloquence and thoughtless thoughtfulness go to die. It is a space defined by rat cunning, the hatching of epithets and an immortal belief in the effectiveness of repetition. It's a space necessarily given to inverting the golden rule of creative writing, show, don't tell. So wrote Martin Mackenzie Murray way back in 2011 in a blog about his role as a former speechwriter. The former speechwriter and correspondent has clearly long had a cynical view of politics and the writers who work in the corridors of power. And now some of these experiences have been filtered through his first novel, The Speechwriter, a truly warped satire speculative fiction set in a fever dream future. Toby, a jailed speechwriter, pens his tell-all memoir, rising up through the ranks of a jaded and truly bizarre bureaucracy until he reaches the top, determined to force a twisted endgame, while sentient playstations wreak havoc in the messed up world beyond the prison walls. Joining me now to talk about this modern political picaresque and the real-life experiences that prompted it is Martin Mackenzie Murray. Uh, Martin, welcome to Backstory. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, I have to say, um, 
I I thought about this book because it is really very much a farce like you there is absolutely no mistaking this for real life although I can I can clearly hear that the cynicism that prompted it has come from that place it is funny it's ridiculous Uh, I immediately thought did you write the book in this way because there's absolutely no chance anyone could sue you for anything that you say about a potentially real life uh, politician or situation uh, that's the second time I've been asked that, actually. If, if kind of fictionalising and exaggerating experiences might save me from lawsuits. <laughs> I, I uh, no is the short answer, though the threat of legal action, because I'm an extremely anxious person, the spectre of that threat still kind of hovers above me. Um, I think that's more due to my anxiety than uh, anything scandalous or defamatory in the book. Um, but there are certainly caricatures in the book that are unflattering, as most caricatures are, and uh, I think a few readers could probably detect the origins of that. But the idea of writing fiction rather than non-fiction, I've, I've typically been a journalist, and before that a speechwriter, as you said in your intro, uh, was to get away from chronicling human depravity, which was my role as a journalist, and to try comedy. I needed, I wanted to take a little bit of a break. Yeah, I really did feel that here. I mean, I, I did. I was being somewhat flippant, I have to say, uh, in that question. But definitely, I could feel the catharsis coming through in this. You, you were writing incredibly <laughs> yeah. art humour, um, and you've written very movingly, actually. And it's something I might refer to later, if that's okay. Um, you wrote an article, I think, about a year ago, that was about covering um, a very personal issue that I, I won't necessarily delve into. But you raised some topics that I think are really important about the toll that things take on journalists and and actually, especially those who are expected to delve into their own trauma to cover things. Uh, but look, mm. uh, let's let's get um, on to this book and um, and the, the incredibly farcical nature of it. I can feel that you probably had quite a lot of fun writing it and you probably, uh, you know, managed to explode a few demons. But I am very, uh, very tempted to ask, like, where exactly this came from? Because, um, I, you know, obviously you, you've referenced a lot of other books um, in it. Um, you've you've satirised quite a lot of things. But but what kind of started you on on this journey of writing a farcical novel? I think the seeds were my time in Canberra. And you mentioned the work of Tharsis. I began writing a sitcom on weekends at the National Library, and that was my creative catharsis. And I was mining a lot of blackness. I thought about this with Armando Anucci's series, The Thick of It, which is arch. It's incredibly dark and cynical about politics. And it's, it's extraordinarily funny. And Armando Anucci is a comedic genius. But it tires, I think, after a while because it's mining this blackness and this contempt. And that was true of me. I think contempt is, is a wonderful creative fuel, but it can overwhelm you or overwhelm the book and become unbearably dark or cynical. And, and hopefully I've achieved the balance. But that's a slight tangent. So the, the origins were going to the library, the National Library on weekends, trying to creatively purge uh, my anxiety and frustrations with the public service. So I've worked in both politics and the public service. I'll make that distinction. And my time in Canberra was in, in the public service. I was a departmental speechwriter. And the frustration was largely 
um, you know, ineffectual. I was whining and self-pitying, regretting my move to Canberra, and I thought, well, let's mine this contempt creatively. Let's try and at least produce something from it. And that was sort of way dormant, but I think a few of the ideas of this novel lay there from 10 years ago, and I adopted it a couple of years ago. But I was working so much as a journal and producing so much work each week, and then there was my first book, which was nonfiction. Uh, I was developing that, and the idea of a novel was kind of pushed aside. But, uh, yeah, after a while, I finally kind of, I don't know, seized the courage to try something new. Yeah, look, I, I want to read a little bit um, just to kind of give people a sense of the sort of um, archness of the of the voice. Um, this is from quite late in the book, um, in a uh, in a chapter entitled "Accelerate the Sickness," <laughs> which indeed the character does do. Uh, Parliament House resembled an alien spaceship that had crashed into remote farmland and partially buried itself with the force of impact. It comprised a vast and bewildering network of corridors and catacombs, but most bewildering was its location. It was designed by a former soldier of Mussolini who looked around after the war and decided to help make a new world rather than rebuild the old. This kind of marriage of sort of, you know, um, you know, I guess seriousness with uh, complete uh, a satirically arched tone does happen quite a bit throughout. Um, the, the kind of scenarios that are created in this book are very much um, are incredibly arch and quite extreme. Um, there's really, you know, um, I, I won't get into all of the various things that happen, but to put it in context, it's, it's set in a world where um, essentially, you know, Donald Trump is about to like uh, take over as his third term and has set up a dictatorship and things that actually seem like uh, awfully plausible but are taken a step beyond uh, what is real or realistic. So can I ask, you know, is this kind of writing that is very much, um, you know, when we talk about farce, it is overblown um, kind of writing that you've taken it a step beyond. How do you go about doing that? Is that just something that you naturally are sort of like adding a little bit of gunpowder to your, you know, to things that actually could be real? Um, what, where is it that you kind of are going with this sort of humour? It's really tricky because with journalism, I, you know if you have a good story or not. And then subsequent to that, you know if you're telling the story well or not. And that probably comes from experience. With comedy, I've long been a comedy nerd. I've long wanted to write um, for film or to write a comedic novel like this one. But I'd never done it before. And so the idea of what makes something funny is still a little mysterious to me. I know surprise is a big part of it. But I would have to revise a lot. And the the book is kind of extreme, which is a measure of my contempt for political culture. <laughs> yeah, um, I did get a little but, bit of that. Yeah. It came yeah. through quite effectively. Yeah. Um, although unusually, and the, and the author can never ever, ever, ever win when citing bad reviews, no matter how charming or persuasive they might be, but I'm going to do it anyway. There was a, there was a review recently, and this was a bit that really hurt, which suggested that the book was um, the work of, of a man that was kind of smugly um, fine with political culture and its status quo. And I could think of few columnists or journalists that's less applicable to. So anyway, the, 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 the kind of extremeness of these uh, comedic scenes um, is a measure of, of my contempt. 
But it's also, I thought, of the comedy, it was like, okay, no, I need to push this scene a little bit more. That's dull. So there was a constant kind of going back to it and going, can I push this a little bit more? And there's a great anxiety about I mean, yes, as you said, there is, some, there is fun in doing it, especially with the dialogue. I think it was the thing that came most naturally to me. But there's also an anxiety about, is this going to work? With journalism, I'm fairly confident that something's going to work or not. But with comedy, it seems so mercurial and its reception so subjective that I was constantly in fear of going, is this just insane? Like, is this so, <laughs> so specific? Is my sense of humor so warped and idiosyncratic that I'm going to make precisely one person laugh and that's myself? Um, and so, yeah, you never know where it's going to land. And certainly I know that with comedy, it, there is no way it's going to be universally amusing. There's no way. Well, look. I mean, I guess that's that's really the thing that I that I um, I thought I, I really wanted to talk to you about this book is that I, I feel like you enjoyed writing it, and and I think that that's a, a hugely important um, you know a hugely important thing if you're going to spend this amount of time in the head of characters um, in doing this. I can really I can almost feel that uh, writerly amusement. Not I'm not necessarily um, you know of course suggesting uh, what that. Uh, commentator was, but more that um, you've clearly had a lot of fun with it. Um, one of the elements in the book that I think people might enjoy is that um, throughout the book, uh, you know, the protagonist is writing from the prison cell. Um, at the start of the book, uh, I think the the um, the writer talks about uh, having daydreamed of um, being charged with a petty crime and being able to spend time in prison reading the Russians, uh, which is, I have to say, um, the very thing that most writers will say is something like, I wish I could just have some kind of non-life-threatening injury that would hospitalise me for a while so I can catch up on my reading. Certainly something I've heard people say before. But of course, the reality of prison is nothing like that. Um, but what does come to light is this uh, strange relationship with a um with his uh his prison um roommate Gary who becomes his editor throughout so there's little asides at um written as footnotes throughout the book that are Gary's editorial notes which I thought was a nice little um a nice little device for, for the author to kind of undercut um the action and to make comments on the narrative as well. Um, I really want to talk about going about doing that because it's sort of one of those um, mm. breaking the fourth walls of writing that I could see uh, was would have been quite enjoyable to write. Yeah, the idea for that came a bit late and Gary, for, I mean, you've, you've set it up nicely. Um, for readers, Gary is Toby's much larger and more violent cellmate. And under duress, Toby includes Gary's um, meditations and corrections and interruptions in footnotes um, at the threat of violence. And Gary is kind of me and Toby is kind of me. They're both, you know, two sides of my personality. And so I've, I've exaggerated my flaws. And I should say when I mention the word contempt, it's not just for political culture, but also my own um, occasional pretentiousness and ambitions. Like, that's very much... This is a very irreverent book, and I, myself, and writing generally is a subject of that irreverence. And so you have Toby, who tells the story of how he ended up in prison, and it starts from his childhood, which is eccentric, he's eccentrically idealistic. And I guess I was, but, you know, nowhere near Toby. Toby is, is, is my flaws, comically magnified. But for all of the ponderousness and the eccentric idealism of 
Toby, you have Gary's bluntness, his hostility to pretension, and that's, that's me as well. And I'm always on this carousel where I can get carried away with my ambition and then I'll flip back and go, you're the son of a cab driver, like, how dare you? You know, like, settle down. You've got a good life. You don't need any more. So there's this internal, uh, in, in, in internal and interminable dialogue that I have with myself and having Gary Bear making all of these intrusions into the narrative, these interruptions, these corrections of Toby, this questioning of him um, was a way of undercutting myself in a way and the, and the act of writing the book. And I don't want it to be overwhelmed by you know, it being meta, but hopefully, hopefully it's more playful than that. I mentioned Armando Anucci before. Um, and the idea was kind of stolen from him and the, the, the comedian Stuart Lee, who had a TV series where it was largely his stand-up comedy on a particular theme each episode. And during that, there would be he would have this aggressive or hostile interlocutor, sometimes played by Amanda Anucci, um, other times uh, by another comic. And they would really un- they would sort of pull apart and dismantle the stand-up that we'd just seen. Um, and it was a way of Stuart Lee subjecting himself and his comedy to not just an academic dismantling, but a very kind of comic piercing of the comedian's um, ego and ambition. And I thought, geez, that's, that's pretty good. And that's, that's a way of kind of calling attention to the fact that, yes, Toby, as idealistic as he is, um, is, is also a self-absorbed Right. <laughs> yeah, and look, and there is a there, in one of the early sections of the book where you know the, actually um, because a lot of this is quite farcical when there is a kind of moment um, when you know something that is both farcical and kind of touching happens. Um, the the kind of uh, the critical voice is is kind of interesting in in this particular area, and I don't think I'm giving too much away I hope uh, an aviation disaster that's um, that's compelled by the protagonist's father kills a, a beloved um, a zoo creature Bessie the eel um, and has and leads to um, our protagonist becoming an anti-hero in everyone's eyes um, and in writing this part um, the note at the bottom is Gary was enraptured by this section a silent Uh, and silent except when he rhetorically asked himself what was wrong with Perth. And I felt great. It made me feel like a real writer, to be honest, and I realised that I wanted his praise. And I thought this was great because, in a way, it sort of undercuts the the kind of, you know, where where the the author is clearly... um, you know, getting involved in the writing and then um, acknowledging that actually they desperately want to get um, to get this affirmation. It's just it's just a lovely little insight into the writing process. Yeah, yeah, and I and I do hope that that's that's upheld. That that um, for all of the targets of my parody and comedic contempt is that I'm included in that list, you know, of subjects of ridicule. Um, and I, I think it's I, 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 almost endless, I think, um, as a subject, is the writer's vanity. And I'm, I'm not without it either. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking today with Martin Mackenzie Murray, author of a new political farce, The Speechwriter, an incredibly warped view inspired by the author's own experiences uh, as a political speechwriter, but also as someone who has worked as a correspondent and written about politics. Now, I I was really interested, um, Marty, in in talking about um, perhaps something that's a much more serious side um, to the the writing and the work that you've done. Uh, You wrote an article a year ago that really outlined um, your experiences in reporting on serious um, trauma, trauma trauma-inducing issues that that really affected you on a very personal level. And I want to quote from that article. Uh, Serious engagement mattered to me. I thought that's what made a life. Only later did this mentality remind me of my physical recklessness on various sports fields and the subsequent sprains, cuts and confrontations but I was confident in my strength and flexibility to withstand any injuries. I was incredibly moved by this piece and just a trigger warning, um, the piece does cover um, issues around um, childhood abuse um, and it's, you know, a a piece that is um, titled um, accordingly from the Sydney Morning Herald about a year ago. Um, It really touches on the issues around not only, obviously, people who are consuming stories that are about incredibly traumatic things, something that we're all thinking about right now uh, when we're hearing the news, devastating news coming out of Canberra every day, um, but also the journalists that are covering this, um, who are people too and who have their own own baggage that they carry with them that they somehow have to put aside when they're covering things for the greater good. Would you be happy to talk a little bit about this, Marty, about your experiences, um, you know, balancing that and ultimately deciding perhaps sometimes I can't be the person to cover this? Yeah, I I can. Um, I guess the column you're speaking to, speaking about, uh, came about about a year after I left the Saturday paper. So I was the chief correspondent there for about five and a half years. And my time there roughly overlapped with the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child abuse. And there was an enormous volume of personal stories that were ventilated in essentially kind of court hearings. I spoke with, I covered it extensively. I spoke with a lot of victims, their families. I listened to an enormous amount of testimony, read a lot of transcripts, uh, became close with a few families, etc. And initially, I was uh, fine. But I have uh, a past of childhood abuse myself. And for a long time, I was perfectly fine with it. Um, it didn't much trouble me. But some point into the years of reporting uh, on the Royal Commission, I, there was an accrual of, of pain. And you started detecting what psychologists have long known, which is certain patterns in two things. One, grooming patterns and the, and the methodology of, of sexual predators, uh, very consistent and also patterns in the victim, in how they receive and respond to abuse. And I would hear time and time and time again from adults relaying stories of their child abuse, how they had internalized the assault 
And the child's logic goes something like this. A bad thing or a terrible thing has happened to me. Ergo, I am terrible. So there are all these psychological insights which resonated very powerfully with my own. And I don't think... Uh, avoidance is a measure of PTSD. It's one of the symptoms of it. And we, we can't avoid these things for, for those of us who have been traumatized or abused. But there is such a thing when you're a journalist that you can become overly saturated with it. And I mentioned the word vanity before. I had a vain conception in my ability to withstand all of this and to commune as well with people's suffering. Um, uh, and that's, it was quite vain. I you know, almost kind of considered myself a priest as much as a journalist because of the empathy um, that I'm, I could bring or, or experience because of, because of my own past. And I think this lent my reporting a certain sensitivity, but it did come at a cost. And I wasn't one to really turn things down or say no. And I really was fine and thought I was fine until I wasn't. And I realized after years of this that uh, it was badly troubling me. And then there was the Harvey Weinstein stuff, which might have been sort of fulcrum of the, of the Me Too movement. And associated with that was uh, the actor uh, Harry Dreyfus's son and his story of being uh, harassed or assaulted by Kevin Spacey. And it's when it, that just sort of unlocked something in a quite specific, horrifying moment for me where I realized I should report my abuse. And so that's something I unfortunately also have experience with is the enormous difficulty, both practical and emotional difficulty of reporting uh, crime and then pursuing justice. It's extraordinarily difficult. And I eventually abandoned it. Um, not with some small amount of, of shame. Um, I guess I'll end this bit by reminding people that, you know, I know that there are people in the in the gallery, journalists who are covering what's going on at the moment, who have their own experiences of trauma or abuse in the past. Um, but I'm embarrassed saying all of this as well because I truly, it's truly, you know, whilst this stuff is kind of faintly radioactive to me um, and I'm, more or less fine covering or thinking and writing about it. When it's this big and sustained, it, it can be a little bit harmful. But I'm embarrassed because it, I do not want for a second to sort of have me or the, um, or the role of the journalist pushed into the center of this. That's not, that shouldn't be the case. So I'm embarrassed if people think, you know, I, I don't want to overstate the injury to me. But um, but yeah. it's very important that you speak about this because it is also part of the toxicity of culture that, that surrounds all of these things is that, look, I mean, and especially for, and I really appreciate you sharing your experience, I should say, and, um, and you know, and sharing it in, in writing and sharing it with us now. Um, I especially thank you because there are a lot of uh, emerging writers who now are perhaps being asked to write on topics um, that they know quite a lot about, um, centering own voices is a really important um, change in journalism. Having said that, uh, I think there is a balance to be struck um, to keep a bit of, of what's yourself back, to consider the costs to you in the longer term, to learn how to say no um, and what your boundaries need to be and perhaps those kinds of things need to be discussed more in, in these industries. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one and it's, it's, a, it's fundamentally a workplace issue, um, 
but I will say that it's I'm principally responsible for my health, and I should have realized what the years of that reporting was doing and spoken up. And yes, editors need to be sensitive to this stuff. They were certainly aware of, of my experience, but principally I'm the one responsible for my own health. Um, but I think newsrooms are, are becoming much more sensitive to, to these things. Yeah, well, again, thank you for sharing your experience in that, in that incredibly moving piece. Um, I do want to come back to the book. Uh, it is, of course, as we've said, this incredible catharsis to some of the horrifying stuff um, that happens. I, I was sort of really interested. I don't want to give away too much about, about what happens um, throughout, but I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the forms that you've played with. Because one of the things that I guess you can do um, when you're writing about a writer is play is play around with the written form a little bit. And you have done that in certain circumstances. You've played around with different types of writing, whether it be text messages or um, in one in one um, uh, chapter, there's a uh, a writer that um, the protagonist works with who's writing the script for a porn. Um, that's got that's got a, uh, a very kind of Aussie sort of feel to it. Um, there's all sorts of different <clears throat> writing forms that kind of emerge in this. Um, and primarily, I would say dialogue is something that really does seem to be foregrounded. Um, did you, like, particularly set out to write something that, that gave you that kind of ability to play around with form and have a bit of fun with, uh, with the different um, modes of... Of communicating, and also, how do you keep the action moving when you're slipping between these these different sort of stylistic forms? Yeah. Um, well, to the first point, I'd love to tell you that I had mastered the plot and knew precisely what I was going to do, uh, but that's not true. It was the writing. This was a desperate improvisation, and there was. There are scripts in there, and it's in the script format. And I'd written a few comedic sketches, and I thought, oh, there's an opportunity to shoehorn one of these in, in, in here. But things often didn't make sense until I was there. And I was like, okay, I need to, I need to move the scene forwards. So it was, it, was a, it was a desperate improvisation. And, yeah, I'm happy that I, a lot of people have remarked on how propulsive the plot is, which I like. It is a bit of a page-turner, I hope, and not in the sense of it being a thriller, but there is a propulsive plot. Yes, there definitely um, is. <laughs> yeah, it, it does kind of race ahead. But in earlier drafts, it was much less funny and much more ponderous. So my editors have to take a lot of the credit here. And it was they who really... I mean, I, I keep thinking... I've thought a lot about comedy and what elements are are in it and in doing some public for this book I've been asked a lot about comedy and it's a wonderful thing to think about but it wasn't actually initially conceived as this all out willfully kind of funny farce and there were bits where there were all these kind of flashbacks and they were the more somber almost straight memoir and all of that was removed because essentially as my editor put it I've written kind of two books here and have inelegantly braved them. So I think that how propulsive... <laughs> Sounds like something is. an editor would say. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was wonderful advice. And if I can be a little boastful here, I'm pretty good at taking criticism. So um, especially from, from sharp editors who I trust. And so I was like, yeah, okay, that, 
does make sense. That stings, but that makes a lot of sense. And so that really, I was like, okay, really lean into the comedy and the farce. Write an entertainment, um, which does have some insights into politics. It, it is very pointed satire at times, mm. but principally I wrote an entertainment. Uh, and there should be nothing morally suspect about that, I, I suggest to the more pretentious critics out there. Um, but that's really, I mean, it's a long way of answering um, your question, which is my editors take a lot of credit for that. And seeing what the book might be in the thicket of multiple books that I think I presented to them, it sort of felt to me like, I, I, I think I referred to this at the start as a kind of modern picaresque um, comedy, uh, which I, I would stand by. I, I feel like it also kind of uses some of, you know, the um, certainly the 19th century novels were very definitely playing around with form. They were very meta. <laughs> and, and I think um, certainly there's an air of that um, throughout that actually this is, this is coming from a long line of sort of, um, it's, it's very modern in its, uh, in its tone, but it's like, uh, you know, it really draws on that kind of energy I think from from those sorts of books. Uh, certainly, the character um, quite pompously suggests that that it's sort of going to be David Copperfield esque, the story of the of the author's life, um, and you can kind of see where where some of these things are going. But um, yeah, would, what would you would you feel like that's a fair um, thing to sort of say about it? I think so, because it's flattering. What you say is, it flatters me. Um, but again, I think unintended. I mean, I think uh, when I did a little bit of teaching, of writing years ago, uh, I would always, you would always get facsimiles, almost plagiarisms from students, from the writers that they admired. And I thought that was fine, because it showed that they cared. It showed that they adored particular authors. It was evidence of passion. It was also evidence of a complete unformed talent. But that that's fine. You have you, you have to work your way through there. And eventually you get to a point where hopefully unconsciously you might start channeling certain forms or styles or little tricks. Um, which is a really pretentious way of saying that I don't think any of that was deliberate, but hopefully I was in ways channeling um, all of my reading which is, you know, reasonably varied. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's a nicer gloss on what I said earlier, which was that it was all a desperate improvisation. Um, <laughs> Perhaps it always has part... been. <laughs> Perhaps that's just writing. Yeah. I, I, suspect, I suspect now it might be. Um, uh, yeah, but, I, you know, I think it's, it's in some ways stuff's going to come out. In, it, I, in fact, I was reading Evelyn Wall. I, I knew Evelyn Wall would have to come up. <laughs> Did you? you can see, yeah, especially the Fine and Fall, which the yes. arc is kind of similar. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't read Evelyn before, um, shamefully, and, and he, they're all quite small books, so I, I stormed through quite a few of them. I was surprised to find the how effervescent his language is, the sparkliness and the seeming modernity of his wit mm. for this cantankerous Catholic shit. You know, like he was a... He, he was, was a, a horrible human being. <laughs> yeah, horrible. The, the effervescence of... And Decline and Fall must be about 100 years old now. I highly recommend it. Um, so... He was a de- he was a desperately nasty critic, and I think that that's part of the reason why his whip his wit felt so modern and so sharp because he pulled no punches. Um, but mm. yeah, he was not a nice human being, was he? 
No, a great hater, but he could hate. He could he could hate well. <laughs> he hated play. well on paper. Yeah, he did. Yeah, um, and I think regarding that influence, hopefully you, you you would wear your influences lightly, and they would be channeled in this kind of really subtle way. But if you're reading something in the moment whilst you're writing, um, and it really impresses you, then I start getting fearful because it's like, am I just going to be? Is it, am I going to wear this influence very unsubtly? Um, and so I stopped reading comedy. Like I started reading stuff that was kind of really had no bearing or instruction or influence upon my own book because uh, I didn't want I didn't want that almost plagiarized style or, or, or certain influence being expressed unsubtly. Yeah, I, I want to ask, um, and perhaps this is something we can uh, we can finish on I, I I'm really curious about uh, whether this is going to be I mean you've written a very different book you've written a true crime uh, I guess you would call it um, certainly more of a work of non-fiction um, and more of a serious book or a serious book um, now you're writing something very very different uh, you're obviously someone who enjoys playing with form and um, and this was a, a bit of escapism as well um, for you but you know, having you know, when we're talking about um, humorists or people who write, um, you know, these kinds of um, picaresque or, uh, novels, they made a career out of that. They they mm. wrote quite a few of them. We don't have that many comedic writers that um, that continue to produce um, determined comedy, and those that have mm. done so in in the past tend to tend to have this enormous following because. Um, you know, they do capture people's interest and if you land that humour and the especially this kind of bizarre humour, um, you know, that, that audience becomes cultishly in love with you. Um, is this something that you feel drawn to or is it is it another kind of stop on your writer's journey? Yeah, I don't. I've got a few ideas for future comedies. At the same time, I've signed contracts for non-fiction books. Um, returning to themes of trauma as well. Um, I think what was important to me is I, I think a lot of writers turn out the same stuff and are content with uh, cultivating their neat little garden and they don't take any risks. I wanted to take a risk. I really did. Um, Norman Mailer, I mean, Norman Mailer was a violent, he stabbed his wife, he was a despicable, vulgar exhibitionist um, but the lesson I took from Mailer, as absurd as some of his writing could be, is that he was always willing to take risks with his talent. And I wanted to try something completely different, knowing that it would be a risk, knowing that... And writing comedy is easily the hardest form of writing I've done, from speech writing to opinion writing to investigative pieces to journalistic profiles to really long-form features... Comedy, easily the hardest, and I have utmost respect for, for those who, who do, do it well. I kept thinking of Paul, Paul Beatty, or Paul Beatty, um, uh, the sellout, which won the book review yes. today, who was the first American to win it. It's brutal, out. it's great. It's, it's extraordinary, and the writing is, speaking of effervescence, like yeah. every sentence is sparkling, like it's just so, so sharp. I was really envious. Um, so I wanted to try that, but I don't. I want to try other things as well. And unfortunately, you know that might mean always embarrassing myself because I'm forever writing the first book um, in in a particular genre. 
But, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy to take those risks. Um, and so, yeah, there's a few ideas bumping around for comedy. Um, as so it is for another novel, which would be quite serious, and, and, and as I said, a couple of non-fiction books. So I don't know. I'm, I've never been much of a planner, um, as this book was kind of desperately improvised, so to my career. So I don't, I don't know um, what's next. Well, specifically, I do know immediately what's next. But, yeah, beyond that, I don't know. Hopefully there's more comedy. Well, I very much look forward to seeing uh, what... Uh, you produce next. Um, I'm sure that whatever it is, it will have um, your own unique and extraordinary style in it. Um, with, uh, and it sounds like it will be non-fiction. But thank you so much for joining me today to talk about uh, your book, The Speechwriter. Thanks, Val. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was uh, Martin Mackenzie Murray, uh, the author of a uh, farcical political satire, uh, The Speechwriter, which is out now through Scribe. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.